0: Well, good morning again. Uh, We are continuing our series through the book of Exodus, and during this Lenten season, we've been wandering around the desert uh, with the Israelites, and we've been discovering the ways that God is at work in some of the desert experiences that we face. We've discovered the hopeful news that these are not wasted years, but formative years. God is seeking to form a new kind of people that are a beacon of light to the nations a people marked by righteousness and justice. Last week, we did a high-level view of the Ten Commandments, and we discovered uh, that God has uh, an ethical vision for us that is meant to lead us into freedom. We discovered last week that freedom does not mean the absence of all constraint. In fact, there are restrictions that can be liberating. Just as a whale is not free when it breaches the limitations of water, so we are not free when we breach the life-giving restrictions of loving one another and caring and living justly in community. God desires our freedom, but what we discover in our text today is that it did not take long for the Israelites to fail in living into this vision. Moses is up on the mountain for the next 12 chapters. You notice we skipped ahead a little bit today. He's getting more instructions about the law and about how God is going to be present with them through the building of this ark, the ark of the covenant. And uh, while they are waiting, they grow impatient and quickly slip into this practice of idolatry, breaching, breaking the second commandment. Now, upon first read, I I wonder if this feels a bit inaccessible to us. This is a strange story, a story of building a golden cow and worshiping it to, to it. And as modern listeners, we might struggle to connect with this. It might just feel strange and odd. We don't practice idolatry in quite this same primitive form. We don't have golden statues. And yet I would suggest to you, and we talked briefly about this last week, that idolatry is very much at work in our world and in our lives, and yet it takes a more subtle and insidious form. We too have a tendency to put our hope in futile things, in counterfeit gods that will break our heart and will not truly offer us the hope and the salvation that they promise. Now, the scriptures talk about idols not only in in these literal forms, but also as things we set up within our own hearts. In Ezekiel 14, the prophet talks about how we set up idols in our hearts. Paul talks about how greed is a form of idolatry. So it's not just these primitive golden statues, but it's all these things that our hearts are attached to, I want to revisit a definition we looked at last week from Timothy Keller. What is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. As we engage this conversation, I want to expose some of those subtle idols that are at work in our hearts Those things that we turn to for ultimate joy, ultimate purpose, ultimate security. We can make an idol out of all kinds of things. We can make idols out of possessions and our bank account. We can make idols out of success, trying to prove that we are enough. We can make idols out of charismatic leaders, political movements, ideologies, A lot of things can be turned into idols when they cross that line from being an okay thing into my source of meaning, my source of hope, my source of security. So today what I want to do as we engage this text is two things. First, I want to expose some of the more subtle idols that are at work even in our spiritual religious life, those ones that can fly under the radar. I want to bring them into the light. And then I want to ask this question, how can we confront them? I want to explore how we can... uh, avoid the temptation to give our allegiance to other things that are ultimately going to break our hearts and let us down what i notice in exodus 32 is that the, this golden calf is, is a subtle insidious kind of idol because it is actually cloaked in religious language it is a religious idol and so we'll notice in our text how they speak of this golden calf that they form. In verse 5 and 6, we read this. When Aaron saw this, uh, this golden calf, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. Now, that's the word Yahweh in the Hebrew Scriptures. So the next day, the people arose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. And here's the danger of this particular idol. They have created something that is a representation of Yahweh, and they are still calling it Yahweh. Right? So they have created something, and they're basically turning God uh, and creating God in their own image. They're still worshiping. They're saying, we're worshiping God. They're following the instructions of worship to Yahweh through these various, um, various sacrifices that they're going to bring. When they asked for this idol to be made, they said, come, make us gods who will go before us. This language of the God who goes before us is language that is ascribed to the representative of Yahweh as the messenger and the angel that is gone before the people, all throughout the Exodus story. So they're creating their own picture of God that is actually divorced from God. It is cloaked in a half-truth. They have created God in their own image. And what I want to explore is why they did this and why we sometimes do this in our own spiritual journey. I want to expose some subtle religious idols that are at work. And the first thing that I, I think they are doing, and the draw to this odd act of creating this calf, is that they want God on their terms. And in a similar way, sometimes we want God on our terms. And one commentator writes this: so "I think this is insightful. "The cow gave no law and demanded no obedience." It had no wrath or justice or holiness to be feared. It was deaf, dumb, and impotent, but at least it could not intrude on their fun and call them to judgment, right? By creating this calf and saying, this is our God, they're able to be in control of who God is. They're creating God in the image of what they want. And in a similar way, I wonder if we are drawn to do this at times, Sometimes I think we have a tendency to edit Scripture, the the Scriptures that we find challenging or inconvenient. Sometimes we want to create a picture of God that conveniently endorses our agenda and our perspective. The calf was a a religious symbol in culture, and sometimes our picture of Jesus, it, it, it takes on some of the values of our culture. And so we create a God very much in line with our image, or with our agenda. At times, I think sometimes we like to put God in a highly controlled theological box, and that's what is happening when God is divorced from the independence of Yahweh Himself. They are the ones that are defining and showing who God is. They're the ones that are in control. Do we sometimes fall into that trap as well? where we limit God, we put him in a small theological box and say, we've got him figured out. There's a danger of sometimes even making our our tightly defined doctrine a religious idol, saying, we've figured it out. We're the true church. We've got it all figured out. Now, hear this. Doctrine matters. God has revealed himself and has given us theology and liturgy to bring us into the presence of God, so we are not left without any images or pictures of God. But there is a danger when we have this prideful realization or expectation that we have God all figured out. When that is the case, we don't actually have to trust God. We don't have to be in relationship with God. We have God contained in our images. There's an interesting contrast going on here between the formation of this calf and the formation of the Ark of the Covenant that uh, there's all these Instructions that are given to Moses leading up to this time. And the structure that Moses was asked to create created a, a symbol of the presence of God. There was a throne, uh, and it was uh, this beautiful, powerful image that would go with the people as a representation of God's presence. But God himself was never uh, created as an image, the throne was empty. There was still room for mystery, there was still room for God to be God. Whereas in this particular idol, they have created God. They are the ones in control. And so I just wonder (laughs) if that same idolatry is at work in our own life. Have we created God in our own image? Do we have God on our terms? Have we fit him into the mold of our agenda, our limited perspective? The danger of that is we limit God. The danger of that is also that it it can create relational conflict when we have this arrogant sense that I'm right and you're all wrong. (laughs) We can become scoffers when we buy into this idol of doctrinal correctness. And that's one of the visions of, of the, the covenant church and of our church in general to, to be tied to the scripture and yet to have a, enough humility to know that there's more for us to learn. And sometimes things are confusing and we're going to be challenged by different ideas and we're going to be in community in the midst of our differences. I call us to that, that vision. If you are never upset at church, then we're probably not doing it right. <laughs> if, we're, if we're never confronting ideas that we're like, I'm not sure about that then maybe we've got God too tightly confined. It's good for us to be challenged. It's good for us to stand under the Word of God and and have this posture that we have maybe more to learn, that we're going to refine one another through hard conversations. The second reason why I think they're tempted to build this calf is that they are drawn into this other possible religious idol, which is works-based spirituality, works-based spirituality. I want you to notice something interesting that Stephen comments about this scene in Acts chapter 7. And so Stephen tells the story of the Israelite people, and when he comes to this scene, he says, they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and held a celebration in honor of what their hands had made. You notice what they're celebrating. Look what we have accomplished. Look what our hands have made. I think in our own ways, there's a danger that uh, we can start to think that it's up to us to save ourselves. Look at my moral achievements. Look at my ministry success. While we preach a message of grace, I think we often live a religion of works we feel that will be enough if we can just show that show what our hands have made look what we've done and maybe you've been tripped up by that recently the symptom of that is that we feel a sense of oppressiveness that we can't really live up to our ideals or we're in this comparison trap this is an idol that's going to let you down folks When you think it's up to what my hands can create, again, this distances us from God. We're no longer related to Yahweh. We're no longer dependent on God, but it's up to us to create our salvation. I wonder if God wants to free us from some of that today. We've fallen into that trap of thinking it's up to us to save ourselves. Are we celebrating what our hands have made Success can be a dangerous idol. It can lead us into this crushing sense of always having to do more, always having to prove our worth. Does God want to free us from that and say, there is grace for you, that you do not have to save yourself by the work of your own hands? This is a quote from Timothy Keller. Another kind of religious idolatry has to do with moral living itself. The default mode of the human heart is to seek to control God and others through our moral performance. Because we have lived virtuous lives, we feel that God and the people we meet owe us respect and support, that we may give lip service as our example and inspiration to Jesus as our example and inspiration, we are still looking to ourselves and our own moral striving for salvation. I wonder if God wants to free us from that, that subtle idol in our lives. And the last thing I just notice about what this calf represents is that sometimes we have a tendency to worship stand-ins for God or worshiping the messengers that stand in the gap for God. As I mentioned earlier, this language of create a God who will go before us is meant to represent, to give a visual image of God's messenger. And this is a a thought from Terence Fretheim in his commentary. He says, the confusion of God with the messenger is not an uncommon problem for communities of faith. Time after time, people have lifted up those who speak and lead for God and give them virtual divine status. They give their primary allegiance to the messenger, sing their praises of the messenger, inscribe to the messenger what only God can do. It is a serious and often subtle form of idolatry. If we sometimes put too much hope in another person, in a religious leader, in a political leader, saying, that's my source of hope, that leader. Now, leadership's important, and actually one of the problems in this text is that there's a vacuum of leadership, and Moses is gone, Aaron just gives in to the people, He, he doesn't lead well, we need leaders. There's a danger on both sides of that relationship <laughs> of leaders buying into it or other people buying into this idea that we aren't just ministers but messiahs, and so there's that crushing expectation placed on someone that can't live up to that. I can get in the way of our, our reliance on the Lord. Well, I want to ask this question about how we confront these subtle idols that are at work in our hearts. And, there's a couple things that I notice in this text I think help us avoid giving our allegiance, giving our heart, putting our hope in these counterfeit gods that don't live up to their promises. And the first thing I think that helps us on this journey of freedom from idolatry is that we need to become disenchanted with our idols. We need to see them for what they are, recognize that they don't live up to what they promise. We need to recognize the limits of the idols in our lives. You know, upon first read, this story does sound strange, doesn't it? Like, why are they worshiping a golden cow? It just seems so futile. But I think that's the point of this text. It's almost a hyperbole to expose how futile it is for us to put hope in some of the things we trust. And the prophets pick up on this. They point out just the oddness, the strangeness of of putting their trust in something that so obviously is not powerful and cannot save. The prophet Habakkuk uh, writes this, of what value is an idol carved by a craftsman? He makes idols that cannot speak. Woe to him who say to wood, come to life, or to a lifeless stone, wake up. Can it give guidance? It is covered with gold and silver. There's no breath in it. In the biblical tradition and the commentary on this, it, the, the strangeness, the oddness of the story is telling us something. It's saying, look at the things you worship. Can we recognize their futility, their lifelessness? Maybe you have become disenchanted with an idol in your life recently, And I would submit to you that that's actually a great opportunity for us to look elsewhere. Have you been let down by some of the things that you have put your hope in, put your trust in? Have they turned out to be lifeless and futile? There's a a great reflection from David Foster Wallace. I think I've referenced this before. I want to hold this up again and go a little bit deeper with it. Uh, What I love about this observation is it's coming from a non-Christian. David Foster Wallace is a a writer, and um, he notices, though, that in his own experience, just aside from a a Christian journey, that there's something deeper that he is looking for, and that some of the things we worship and trust come up empty for us. And so he says this, there's no such thing as not worshiping, everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship. Now, notice he hasn't made a Christian conversion, but he's just seeking. There's got to be something deeper. The reason why I need to look deeper for something spiritual is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. And then he gives a bunch of examples. He says, if you worship money and things, then you will never have enough. Can anyone relate to that? The lifelessness, the empty promises of, of pursuing wealth. Worship your own body and beauty and you will always feel ugly. Worship power, you will feel weak and afraid and you will need ever more power over others to keep that fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Part of the journey away from idolatry is becoming disenchanted with our idols, realizing that some of the things I have put my hope in have come up short, and they are eating me alive. Second part, I think, of our journey away from idolatry is that we need a renewed reverence in the Lord. Theologians often make this connection between pride and sin. At the root of sin and rebellion is pride because essentially what we were saying is, yeah, I heard you, God, but I think I have a better plan. <laughs> Do you hear the arrogance in that? And I think at times we treat the Ten Commandments as the Ten Suggestions. We're like, I'll, I'll consider it. I'll take that under advisement, but I'm going to maybe try some other paths. And what we see in this text is that God isn't fooling around with these things. (laughs) He knows that these idols are going to break our hearts. They're going to lead us into slavery. They're going to eat us alive. And he is troubled by that. And we heard some intense language describing God, some anger that God has for his people turning so quickly away from this call to follow the Ten Commandments. This was so quick after they received it. Just a couple chapters earlier, yes, Lord, we will do this. And then within a matter of days, they're, they're giving their allegiance to a golden calf. It's like cheating on someone on your honeymoon. They just made this agreement. And God is angered by that. And I think sometimes we're troubled by this image of God who's wrathful and angry. We like the picture of a forgiving God, a loving God, and that's in this text. We're going to talk about that in a moment. But I want us to remember that the anger of God, the wrath of God, is actually an expression of the love of God. It wouldn't be loving if God didn't care about the, the ways that we're hurting ourselves and others by turning in other directions, by turning to these false gods. This is an expression of God's love. Why are you turning to these, these empty, futile gods? And we see the seriousness by which God takes sin. I think... I think we need some more reverence towards God, recognizing that God's serious when he calls us to these ways. These aren't the ten suggestions. These are the ten commandments. So the last thing that I, I want us to notice, and I think this is how we move away from these false gods, is that it happens as we are reconciled to God, as we rediscover Yahweh as the true God. God. I've mentioned this before, but we can't simply cut out the idols in our life because something else is just going to grow in its place. As human beings, we have a need for security and hope and purpose and meaning. So we can't just cut them out. We can't route them out. We need to replace them. And how this this text ends is with this beautiful image of a God who wants to draw us back. Who wants to reconcile us to himself. Moses intercedes on behalf of the people, and we hear in this text a God who is ready to relent and to receive us back into covenant, back into relationship, a God who receives this, this word, this cry for mercy and forgiveness from Moses. And what I think reorients our heart is when we discover the beauty of this God, this God who is powerful, who can deliver us from the things that oppress us, and a God who wants to bring you back into relationship. Let that capture your heart, and these other idols will begin to fade in comparison. Moses stands in the gap. He intercedes, and God relents. And as Exodus continues, we see that God establishes again this covenant with these people, and we read this powerful culmination of this conversation in Exodus 34, a refrain that will echo throughout the Scriptures from this point forward, where God reveals who He truly is, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate, gracious God. This is who I am, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and Sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generations. There are consequences for idolatry, and sometimes we face those consequences, but the heart of God is to be gracious and abounding in love, to draw us back into relationship. Our foray into idolatry does not need to be the end of our story. There's a God who wants to be reconciled with you. In the New Testament, we discover that there is a greater mediator than Moses. Moses ultimately was a failed mediator. He himself had his flaws. But we see in the New Testament this hope that God himself stepped into the gap. He sought to reconcile us to God and and it was Christ Jesus who became this ultimate mediator in 1 Timothy 2, 5-6, for there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. Ultimately, the journey away from idolatry is to discover again the beauty of the true God, a God who loves you, a God who wants to be reconciled to you. May that capture our hearts, may that capture our imaginations, so that we can let go of these false gods that let us down, that eat us alive. Today there is a God who calls out to you. He desires that you would come back, you would return, and you would find rest for your souls, hope for your future, as your heart is captured by this God, abounding in love, gracious and compassionate. Would you receive that hope, that invitation today? And would you join me in prayer? God, we thank you for your grace and, um, and for your warning that you love us enough to, to warn us from giving our heart over to things that, that break our hearts, that let us down, that disrupt the life of freedom that you've called us into. Lord, may we encounter... Uh, you today. May we humble ourselves and in reverence bow before you as our true God. And, And Lord, we praise you and thank you that you are a God who is worthy of our lives, worthy of our praise, a God who extends the invitation to restore this covenant you've made with us today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.